Hi, and welcome to the Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast. Every week, we will talk to the great, the good, and the legendary from the worlds of food, drink, marketing, and business to help give you the advice that will really help your brand boom. A huge thanks to our headline sponsors, the award-winning Engage Interactive. Engage Interactive have been helping hospitality businesses like yours prepare for a mobile and digital first world since 2007. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. So today I've got a really special guest on the podcast, and actually it's a neighbour who only lives about 10-15 minutes away, and it's the incredible Sarah Willingham. If you don't know Sarah, Sarah is well known on the TV with things like Dragon's Den and also the restaurant with Raymond Blanc. But Sarah's also a great entrepreneur, insightful investor, and a financial expert in her own right. Sarah works with amazing companies and brands like Craft Gin Club, Tonkotsu, London Cocktail Club, and many more. And it was a great chat that actually lasted two hours talking about life, talking about lockdown, talking about business, where we go from here and all that kind of stuff. So I can't wait to pick that chat up again with Sarah in a pub, hopefully very, very soon. It was also great to talk about Sarah's childhood and coming through the ranks all the way through Pizza Express to her first solo venture at Bombay Bicycle Club. It's a really inspirational episode for anyone listening. I really hope that it gives you some great value, tips and insight that will really spur you on to do some great things after you've listened to the episode. So it gives me the most Sussex by the sea pleasure ever to introduce my very exciting guest on the show, the mumpreneur, investor and dragon, Sarah Willingham. Hello. Hey. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? All right. All right. Surviving. Surviving. Yeah. I'm very excited to learn that we are nearly neighbours. I know. It's a good... Yeah. Can't ten, believe minutes, it. 10 minutes as the crow flies. So, yeah. yeah. We'll definitely meet for a drink when this is all over. I'm up for it. I'm up for it. Cool. Well, thanks so much for doing this. Um, as you might know, this is uh, series two of, of the podcast. And um, it's been a bit of a, an interesting one because I've recorded quite a few podcasts sort of pre-lockdown and, and even pre-coronavirus. Um, and then these ones will go out slightly later. But it might be quite good just to talk about the now now for a second. Um, just to kind of say, you know, what's going on in your world um, and business-wise and, and how you're seeing things. And then we can move on to much nicer stuff that we can talk about, <laughs> like restaurants and startups and investment and all that jazz. Well, we, um, we've we got a number of investments and I'm, between me and Michael, we work together, my husband, mm. and one of us tends to lead on a particular investment, but often we both dabble on the board or, or whatever. So I'm quite hospital. I'm very hospitality and booze orientated. I don't know what that says about me. I do like a party, but um, so my, a lot of the things that I lead on or sit on the boards or chair of or invest in were hit very early on, which was the hospitality industry. So we closed all of our hospitality um, sites, all of our businesses 
on the 17th of March, which is actually early. It was a little bit before we were forced to close, but we could, you know, the writing was on the wall and we, we wanted to make sure that we were able to close in a sort of orderly fashion. Mm. So London Cocktail Club, we've got 12 sites at London Cocktail Club, all closed. Um, we've, all of our staff are furloughed and, you know, I think our, our fear for London Cocktail Club is that we are, we are basement party venues. You know, it is, you go there, you escape, you, the cocktails are sensational and you have a lot of fun, but there's a lot of people and we're underground. Mm. Um, so we very much anticipate that we'll be, you know, in the last group of people that will be allowed to open again. Um, it's going to be quite difficult to have, you know, we don't have outdoor space. We don't have, it's not that we can separate tables. So we're very, very much like a proper bar. Um, so we've applied for the business interruption loan and we had that very quickly, actually really impressed. We had it within a week of our application, Uh, which I think was, I think we're in the minority there. We have an amazing uh, business, our business bank relationship manager is phenomenal, actually over at Barclays. Um, Tonkotsu, where I'm the chair, we also closed on the 17th of March. We had anticipated staying open for delivery. We actually do quite a lot of delivery and takeaway um, out of that business. But it was very early on, it was quite clear that the staff didn't feel safe getting to work you know, public transport. And also we'd not really been able to make our, the work environment safe enough. So we didn't continue, we didn't do delivery and takeaway. We closed and actually this weekend just gone. So early May, um, we, we just reopened one of our sites for delivery and we hope to open Notting Hill this weekend so we're slowly being able to sort of safeguard the central kitchen and safeguard our businesses site by site so that we can open up for takeaway and delivery there. And again, as I guess, as some kind of social distancing, as those rules change and we're allowed, I don't know, maybe a maximum of 40 people in a venue, um, we, we will have to see how we can fare. The problem, of course, is that Actually, in hospitality, we don't really make any money unless we're at sort of 80, 90 percent occupancy, as you know. So any sort of partial opening for us um, without any help from the landlords is we're not going to make any money. So it's we don't because we don't know what the future is. We're ready. You know, we're on standby. We are financed. Our staff are furloughed. And at the moment, we're doing what we can while we've got rent breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know what the, the future will look like. Another one of our investments, which is the Craft Gin Club, is um, is the opposite and is doing very well. People are um, wanting more alcohol delivered to their home and good quality alcohol. It's the, you know, the party at home. Mm-hmm. And actually... What we've done there is we were planning on opening an e-commerce site in Q4 this year. We brought that forward. And as soon as we saw that this was happening, which is probably seven weeks ago, 
we made the decision as a board to get that e-commerce site up and running and not just open to our members, but also open to the public. And that's made a real difference um, to the economics of the business, actually, because it's given us another revenue stream and it's becoming a really obvious channel for anybody in the UK who wants to buy good quality craft gin. So that one's doing, you know, life's a balance, isn't it? That one is is doing is doing well. And then a lot of our other um, slightly smaller investments, um, most of them are closed, actually. We've got a secret spa where people come into your home and do your nails and uh, massages and beauty beauty treatments that's closed for now until we're allowed to get people back into the home feast it which is another business that is sort of brings street food people together it's it's uh, an aggregator for catering really if you know if you've got a wedding or even a you know big dinner party you can get a top chef in or if you've got a uh, a party wedding whatever and you need to cater for 200 people you would go to feast it and they would organize the the food for you you would all of it, it's an aggregator but of course there's no large events so that at the moment hasn't got any income either so it depends really on the type of business but you know in some way or other everybody is affected some are very lucky and are just positively affected by the the current crisis but it's going to be interesting as we go into you know, people's discretionary spend will will decrease once the the help is removed from the government and we get towards the end of the year. Um, then it's going to be really interesting that even the businesses that are currently doing well, if you're a discretionary spend and we're in a, in a recession, you know, what will happen then? And, and of course, you know, we don't know the answer to that. I mean, just talking about some of the, the brands there, you know, London Cocktail Club, we had one next to us uh, at my old agency, We Are Spectacular, and you were just round the corner from us and um, had a few great nights in there and see one of the nights we went in and it just played like wall-to-wall, like emo, um, you know, sort of alternative uh, rock sort of stuff, you know, all this kind of... Oh, the playlist. At the time of my life, it was yeah. amazing. <laughs> it was such a good night. I uh, know. JJ, who uh, is the original founder of the business, I guess I, I call him the, the magic, you know, he's the guy that, and, and that sort of puts that together. One of the things that as he, you know, as we've expanded, you've got to, you know, as you expand a business, you've got to hone that magic, but still be able to put a structure around it, but still allow that magic to flourish. And one of the things that we would not allow him to delegate to anyone was the playlists because he's so good at it. And that was, that is very much part of the magic. And it's funny that you notice that, but you know, because a lot of people wouldn't, if you're not into your music, you don't necessarily realize that that's such a big deal. But you're absolutely right. The, every, the single, every single hit. You know, like, it, it, you know, and, and I'm basically obsessed with music. I mean, that's, you know, I used to work as a, at our price as a kid and all that stuff. And um, my first job was NME and Loaded and, and all that. And, you know, just uh, hit after hit after. And I think, as you say, the rest of the table was like, all right, are you all right? <laughs> you know, I'm just busting yeah. out <laughs> the next track. Going, oh, my God, I can't believe it's that one. You know, yeah. Exciting. And uh, and tonkotsu I just adore. I think they're the best tasting noodles I think I've ever had in my life. Um, Isn't it? I mean, you know what will happen now? We will both start talking about those ramen. 
<laughs> will salivate. I mean, actually, that's what happens when I start yeah. talking about it. I, I am desperate to get one in Brighton. I mean, it will happen. The food is sensational. That tonkotsu, yeah. I've never tasted anything <laughs> like it. I went in um, October, actually, with the rest of the board. We went on a food foodie type jolly, really, to yeah. Tokyo. Great. Oh, I mean, it's one of the most unbelievable food trips yeah. I've ever had. And all we did, uh, ramen, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I still came, I mean, I had the, some incredible, like really, really, really incredible meals. But I tell you, tonkotsu, I mean, it holds its own. Absolutely. It is still yeah. one of the best ramen I've ever had in my life, ever. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Mark McSee Supersonic Food Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by BDO, the trusted accountancy and advisory firm. As the finance experts in hospitality, BDO have the experience and the insight to provide solid foundations for your business's future growth. BDO really are the go-to team to help your hospitality business succeed. If you're in need of a dedicated transactional team bolstered with corporate finance, audit and tax services, talk to BDO, who've got the right expertise, knowledge and experience to drive your restaurant or bars business throughout their full life cycle. As thought leaders across the sector, BDO offers commercial and technical updates specifically tailored to restaurants and bars, including their annual hospitality reports. BDO also have a well-established network in the industry that spans across finance directors, suppliers and advisors, and they are always willing to use this to their clients and their contacts' advantage. Get in touch today at bdo.co.uk to chat about how they can help take your hospitality business to the top. And please say that I sent you. Well, just going back then, um, you know, obviously we were chatting as well, pre-recording and all that stuff about, you know, your passion for food, drinking and all the rest of it. But it'd be really good to hear where all this came from, you know, the, the food, drink and, and the business as well. Yeah, you know what? I don't really know, which is a very unhelpful answer. <laughs> um, I I was always, so from the business perspective, I um, I don't know where the fascination came from, but I was always really interested in, from a very, very young age, um, and I'm very lucky because my best friends are all my stoke mates and we all met between the age of five and ten so we've all got a lot of history together as you can imagine and they all remember me sat, you know at age 12 saying I just like how what is this coca-cola why why are we all drinking this one drink why is it that we're buying the same stuff why do we all prefer Nike trainers you know I was fascinated by the fact that these businesses and brands were in all of our homes I couldn't even at a very young age I couldn't really get my head around it and I also I loved food my my parents were you know proper working class northerners um who had come from families where food was was fuel much more than something that you would enjoy but my dad had a little greenhouse started to grow his own tomatoes and you know, my mom was a, a an adventurous cook for her time, if you know what I mean. You, you put her into today's world and she doesn't seem adventurous, but it, in um, then it was 
garlic and ginger and herb, fresh herbs. And so I grew up with, you know, parents that cooked from scratch everything and grew as much as they possibly could. But actually, I pretty early on, from the age of 13, had a job in, started off a job in a local cafe in the Stoke Market and loved the industry. I loved how social it was. That was that was the thing for me. I didn't have any money at all and couldn't afford to go out even as I sort of got to 16, 17. I thought, well, actually, the only way that I'm going to be able to go out to the, all these cool places is if I get a job in them. So I ended up starting to work in sort of the coolest restaurant or the coolest bar. or So I got the, the job so that I could have a bit of a social life um, without having to pay for it. That's a good hack. Which was great, actually. Yeah, it was great. I met loads of people, uh, always managed to get into all of the really good places because I'd worked there or knew lots of people that worked there and just loved the industry. Um, so passion for food, realized I found business really interesting, loved restaurants from a kind of a selfish point of view, really. I'd found that they were a real means to an end for me and loved the people that worked in it, just loved the vibe of hospitality. And I guess the fourth part of it was I really wanted to travel. So I didn't grow up traveling and really wanted to take a gap year. So remember, we're like 25 years ago now. Um, Really wanted to take a gap year, which is quite an unusual thing to do at the time. But my dad was having none of it. He was like, get a job, knuckle down, graft. So I thought, right, well, in that case, I'm going to have to get a job where I can travel. So that's... That's why in my 20s, I was basically Planet Hollywood first, then Pizza Express, both of them in the international department, um, ended up running the international side of Pizza Express. And it was so, so I got my restaurants, I got my food, I got my business. um, And I was able to to travel at the same time. So that that was, my drive for that was really found an industry I loved actually wanted to learn the business side of that industry. I I didn't have any desire to open a restaurant. I was much more interested in the sort of how Coca-Cola got into all of our houses, how, you know, why were we all singing a finger of fudge is just enough every day. You know, all that kind of marketing side of it. It was like, how how have they done that? How have they infiltrated all of us? So the chains really interested me. um, And I wanted to learn that. That's, which I was lucky enough to be able to do. So interesting that you say that. Um, if I think back to you know how I ended up getting into marketing, it was similar, but for music. And I worked at our place on a Saturday, and I was obsessed with how something got to number one. Yes, you know, yeah, like, exactly. It, it was on the radio, and then all of a sudden, I was putting up a poster about it, and then I was doing a display of it, and then some things got the big cardboard cutout of, Celine Dion next to it and some didn't and you know and it, it's it's just that inquisition to go yes yeah or, or if they're doing that surely I could do that yeah and that was really my my interest was exactly the same whilst you know so I guess the food side of it yes I was fascinated and I love food but I had never had any desire to sort of have a you know work with anybody in a Michelin star environment that was not my drive at all it's very much this replicable how is it that you can have 300 yeah. fascinated Burger King started to open in the UK and 
and just opened so many of them. What was the business model? And then I was very, very lucky um, after leaving. So I, my job at Planet Hollywood came purely by chance. And I was very lucky then. I was at my final year at university in France, actually. I was living in Paris. And again, same thing, didn't have any money. So I got a job at the weekends working at a place called the Frog and Roast Beef. And that was um, owned by two INSEAD graduates, MBA graduates. Um, And I just used to work there at the weekends. And the way that they worked is all tips got pooled and were, were, it's before a trunk system, was put into a jar, basically. And, then, and what they said is anybody that works here can drink here anytime, any day for free. That was basically where your tips went. Oh. So I was, I was brilliant. It was 200 metres from my home. I did a Sunday afternoon on a busy rugby shift, which I loved. Um, and then I could, but I could drink with my mates for free, basically, all week whenever I wanted to. And the people who had done the frog and roast beef also who were uh, like the consultants in France were also the same people that were hired by Planet Hollywood to open their first Planet Hollywood in continental Europe, which was on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. And they were having a nightmare with the American and French culture. There was like, they, they could not see eye to eye at all. So the Americans would come over on the red eye. You can imagine, you know, the big VPs from Orlando would come over, walk onto a big building site on the Champs-Élysées and the French would be sat there eating like on these makeshift tables, eating baguettes and, you know, chatting with a bit of half a carafe of wine. And they were like, what? They could not get their head around it at all. The fact that the French were taking the breaks and just the way, just the difference in culture. So they went to the owners of the frog and roast beef and said, look, is there any chance one of you could just come and do three months? We need somebody to bridge this gap who is, you know, sensible enough that speaks fluent French as well, but is also sensible enough to understand the two different business cultures. And to this day, I don't know why. And I'm so eternally grateful. Uh, they said, no, but there's this girl that works on a Sunday afternoon. You should probably have a chat with her. I, I so, so grateful. So I was offered that job. And I guess the rest was kind of history, really. That was it. I'd found my thing. I, I was in the sort of head office environment mm. of opening a restaurant, which is where I wanted to be. I then went back to, they then offered me a job um, in London, looking after European franchising, awesome job. Realised quite quickly after a couple of years that it was not really a sustainable business model so um before the mass redundancy started to happen i kind of started to look around and loved the international angle did a bit of research i remember just thinking i remember literally just buying the ft one day and flicking through it thinking well this is seemingly what really clever people do um, flicking through the pages of the Financial Times, trying to find something. And on that day, there was an article about Pret-a-Manger and an article about Luke Osmond and um, Hugh Johnson buying, oh, sorry, Luke Johnson and Hugh Osmond mm-hmm. buying uh, Pizza Express. So I thought, well, they'd be great if they're both well-funded. They'd be great for international expansion. So I ripped out the pages of the FT, contacted both businesses and said, look, what about international expansion? I, this is what I would love to do that for you. Pret-a-Manger 
were like Sarah who, you know, what on earth are you talking about? Um, but Pizza Express said, well, actually, we've just been having this conversation at board level. Come in and have a chat. Mm-hmm. Um, so they hired me. I did that for two or three years. Loved it. Opened restaurants all over the world. Had the most amazing time. Was still learning. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And then I went to um, the board and said, look, this is clearly not core business. You know, you it's not really adding value to the business. In fact, if anything, it's probably a distraction. Um, I think it's time I moved on and did something else. And they said, no, no, don't, don't go stay with us and do, you know, strategic projects, work for the board and do strategic projects. That's things like putting pizzas into the supermarkets, that type of thing. And, but the stroke of luck was that I shared an office with uh, David Page and John Metcalf, who were were the was the chair. I think David Page was the chair at the time, and John Metcalf was the MD. And I must have shared an office with them for about a year, and it was the most important turning point, I think, in terms of my personal career, because I just sat and listened, and questioned, and questioned, and questioned, and questioned, until I really understood the business model of the value creation of a chain. Now, and what what I mean by that is that, is, you know, we were floated at the time. So to understand, you know, about P ratios, and every pound that you make when you open a restaurant, what it's worth to a shareholder in terms of shareholder value and how you create that shareholder value is a lesson that it was something that was really missing in my understanding of the, this replicable business model that I'd started to learn, but I didn't really understand at its core how, you know, one group of people would do it and have a business worth 10 million and another group of people would do the same thing and have a business worth a hundred million. And I was like, what, why, why is one business creating more value than the other? Um, and that was brilliant. I mean, so lucky to have had that experience and I just soaked it up until one day I thought to myself, I completely get it. Like I know what you do and I can do this. So that's when I went to the board of Pizza Express and said, look, I, I really want to do this on my own. I want to go off and um, do what you've, what you've done, but in a different industry. But I'd like to do it with you. And that's when I put to them the Bombay Bicycle Club and let's do to Indian food what you've done to the pizzas and let's create the largest chain of Indian restaurants in the UK. But they weren't interested. And actually at the time, it was quite obvious that they were looking at doing an MBO. It was at that time when actually the, the structuring, the, the first set of restructuring of pizza, financial restructuring of Pizza Express started, was taking place. Yeah. So I thought, you know what, it's time, Sarah, just go and do it. Um, I was aware that at some point I would want a family and I was still in my late twenties at this time. I would want a family and you know, living out of a suitcase and running international departments or running off somebody else's diary was just not, going to work for me so I thought go and do it now go and create some value before you have kids so that hopefully when you have kids you can be more of a mom to them yeah. uh, than I certainly would have been able to be at the time um, and that's what I did I went off and then raised the money to buy the Bombay Bicycle Club and did end up with the largest chain of Indian restaurants in the UK and what's crazy is 
I that I still have that title that shows how fragmented the market is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's you know, it's still very, very much a mom and pop industry. Actually, Chinese food's exactly the same. Um, and Thai. I mean, yes, I mean Thai. I guess we've seen you know Alan Yao's done some stuff. You know, of course, there's Wagamama. Obviously, that's a big chain. Um, nobody's really done. We've not nailed it. Yeah. No, we've not nailed it, and we've certainly not nailed Chinese, and we've still not nailed um, Indian food. One of the big things in Indian food actually is that we don't really eat it at lunchtime. Yeah, That's a big. It is a big cultural, um, prob- I guess, challenge that you've got to overcome if you want to have a chain of of Indian restaurants in the UK. Hi, I'm Alex from Engage, and thanks for tuning in to the Supersonic Marketing Podcast. Each week, we'll be bringing you a great tip to supercharge your own digital marketing. And this week's comes from Shri, our head of SEO. Once a website or piece of content is live, it's easy to forget about it and just move on to the next task. However, there's a huge benefit in making sure your site is continually performing well in organic search, so it's worthwhile giving it a quick audit from time to time. The best way to do this is by using Google's Search Console. Search Console provides a whole host of information about your site and, importantly, any issues Google is having with it. And you can be sure if Google's having issues, then your customers are too. Go to google.com forward slash webmasters to start the ball rolling or log in if you're already set up. The first place to start is with the coverage report. Check for any pages with errors or warnings. The two most common errors we see that are worth fixing are soft 404 and redirect errors. Luckily, Google tells you exactly which pages are responsible for the warnings, how to fix them, and even allows you to export the data so you can share it easily with your web developer. If you need any help getting to grips with your own search console or getting your site at the search rankings, then head over to engageinteractive.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can see how we've helped some of the UK's most ambitious and successful hospitality brands with their own digital marketing strategies. Cheers, and enjoy the rest of the episode. That was it, really. That was kind of my, I mean, very briefly, but that was sort of my journey in, in hospitality. And then, you know, I ended up with 1,500 staff uh, and I just started to have kids. I had four kids very quickly, four in four and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I was on number two and I realized this isn't going to work. So I remember coming back from a board meeting uh, my first board meeting after I'd had my second baby and saying to Michael, I need to get out. I can't, I can't run this business and be the mum that I want to be. Yeah. So I was very lucky, managed to successfully sell it. And that's when I got into investing because I love what I do. I mean, I love the industry, really love hospitality, love delivery, um, love business, but I, made that decision there that there and then that I think, you know, my kids needed to be the only people that were reliant on me getting up in the morning. Yeah. I needed to find a way of working with people where I could still really help and influence and still create value, but I wasn't running it. Well, I think there's a few things, you know, just about, about everything you've said and, you know, just listening to your words and, and unpacking it a bit. So a couple of great things. Um, when I was, um, I think I was maybe at Yo, and and I was not enjoying it towards the end, and um, I was at an airport, and I picked up this book, and 
there's a kind of hippie t-shirt lifestyle kind of brand called Life is Good. I don't know if you've ever seen this. And yeah. they had a book. It's all like kind of wee, almost like innocent sort of drawings, you know. And um, they've got a book and it's all like phrases, you know, all those who wander or not, might not be lost or all that jazz. But one of the, the pages, and it really, really stuck out to me, it just said, you'll never be a success living someone else's dream. Yeah. And to your point about some, you know, you marching to the tune and drumbeat of someone else's diary and what comes into their mind that day and railroading all the good intentions you might have had. Um, it sounds like you're a bit of a control freak like me in some ways. Yeah, well, I, just that, like, yeah. I need to do what I want to do, you know? Um, so that 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 was a, a, a great thing. And then um, just on, on the mum point as well, I, I went on this really good away night thing and it was with Kings Park Capital and we went to Clevedon House. Is that what you, is that what you call yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So we went along and we... There was a bunch of operators, basically, and I, I kind of got up along as the token agency guy. I, I was agency side by that time. And uh, anyway, long story short, we we went round the library um, asking people what their child was. almost like Poirot or something, right? You're kind of interrogating everyone and going, right, what's your challenge? What's your challenge? And, you know, Lucy, who, you know, used to head up a lot of the stuff at SSP, um. You know, she said something brilliant and put it on the agenda, which was almost an unfairness that in a lot of cases, either um, chemical-wise and, and, you know, and heart-wise and all that stuff, or just society-wise or whatever, you know, when a successful woman has a baby, it might be that, A, she's naturally drawn to, to want to be at home, but also it can harm your progression, um, you know, and, and also with your other half, you might be more expected to be with them than your other half. And so we just had a big sort of discussion about it. And, and I don't know if we came to any great conclusions, but it really always stuck in my mind that it, it, it just still isn't balanced or fair or worked out completely yet, I don't think. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people um, about this subject and I, I it's so individual, you know. I, I really, it is not up to us to make a decision for a mom or a dad, actually, because it is so individual. But what I believe deep down, like in my core, is that you cannot fight nature. Yeah. And nature's always going to win. So if you have a mom like me, so I am an example of a mom that I'm extremely maternal, I had lots of kids. And I wanted to be a mom, still want to be a mom, still love being a mom. It was very, very important to me. Therefore, I had to make sure that whatever I was doing outside of that still allowed me to be a mom or I'd feel it like in my tummy. You know, it, it, it hurt me. I've got friends who have also had kids. that Actually, their career is extremely important to them. And during the week, they don't really want to parent. Yeah. And there's absolutely no judgment there whatsoever. That is the way that they are. That's the way that they made. And it's actually because they're allowed to do that, they are better mums for it. Yeah. So, And that's why I think where businesses go so wrong is that they, you know, one size doesn't fit all. You have got to, every individual, you've got to talk to every individual, what is it that they 
you want because you'll find that, that you know we, we automatically assume that just because people have had kids they really want to be hands-on mums it's actually some people's worst nightmare they don't want to be and you've got to respect both sides of that and in that flexibility I believe you will absolutely get the best out of your staff and certainly for women if you can allow them that choice so if I want to be a mom if I can work within a flexible environment that allows me to be a mom you're going to get so much more out of out of me than if you assume that I feel the same as the others and I want to come back at, after six weeks and work full time but yeah. you will also have some people that want to do that you know and it's been a real eye-opener for me talking to so many different women about it and actually learning you know just because they had kids doesn't mean they want to parent all the time and I think that's a big assumption that we can all make. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that businesses, where they go wrong is, you know, one, assuming that one size fits all, but two, not having that conversation. Um, because the one thing I have seen time and time again is that nature wins. It mm. always wins. Definitely. And I, I think, you know, with the COVID stuff and all that as well, I think there's there's got to be conversations going back to work general as well you know how do you want to work how can we get the best out of you you know actually there might be some people that are like I mean when I'm saying this I'm probably saying me by the way that just doesn't want to go on the train again to, you know Brighton yeah. to London and do that anymore you know it's it's so I think there's you know there's a lot of that and, and as you say I, I, I never understand it but I can sympathize with it which which is you know business owners not talking to their people you know, know. The times I'm on calls about brands or internal communications or whatever it is, and I say, we actually asked your teams. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> it's like, well, what are you scared of? They're your people. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really interesting point, though, about with, with COVID. What is, gonna, what is the world actually going to look like after this? And one of the things that I think for sure is that things like Zoom meetings – um, or virtual meetings will no longer be, I hope, will no longer be frowned upon as lazy, yeah. you know, like as, oh, I couldn't be bothered to come into London today, so I'm sitting at home, uh, will actually be totally acceptable to have some members of a team might be in town uh, or might be in the office and other members will be working from home, but that meeting can still be fully functional, as we have all proven, still be fully functional, um, online and I think you know some people I've spoken to cannot wait to get back on that train and into London I'm, I'm with you I'm exactly the same I don't want to go back in and certainly not at the moment that dynamic will change I hope and and actually certainly until there's a vaccine anyway I can't see a situation where any form of office will go back to its normal working it will be, offices will be allowed to reopen but it will ha you know hot desks will change they will go um there'll be those shared spaces will will struggle with certainly with any level of capacity if it's not co constantly disinfected and i think the government until there's a vaccine will strongly encourage businesses to allow people to work from home yeah. and i hope you know once you do something for six months a year 18 months that changes behavior fundamentally Mm -hmm. So I hope that that's one of the really positive side effects to come out of this. So I'm just, the, the other thing you, you touched on earlier, which I thought was brilliant, was why you were listening to, to David and John, why a business is, is worth 10 million versus 100 million. 
Is there any sort of headline factors without getting into it? You know, I know there's a hugely complex thing behind it, but was there a few well, things? Yeah, one of the big things that I learned was, you know, of course, a business is only worth what it's worth if somebody's prepared to pay something for it. Mm. Um, and that was, um, which sounds like a really obvious thing, uh, but in terms of its actual market cap, you know, not obviously cash flow is important and you can take out dividends on an ongoing basis, but they are two completely different business models, a lifestyle business or where you're sort of creating values for sh- value for shareholders. And that was one of the big things that I learned. And I, I learned it was about the beauty of replicating a fundamental business model, a core business model. And actually that P&L that um, you see with the likes of Pizza Express, Nando's, um, they've now done it with Frank Amanka, Wagamama's, their P&Ls pretty much all look the same mm-hmm. um, when you go through them. And it is about getting your business model right. So, you know, you open one or two, maybe three, um, getting it so that you're, you know, you've got your 20, 25% EBITDA bottom line and you replicate the same thing. So, for example, with London Cocktail Club, very easy in the early days, you know, oh, it's great sites come up. It's only for a couple of years. Let's take it. We'll make loads of cash or oh, mate in mine in Barbados wants to open one. All of those things are, they fall into the lifestyle business category. They're not in the job create, um, the value creation for shareholders. So if we want somebody to buy London Cocktail Club, we have, we have to prove that somebody even without experience in the industry could come in and open another 50. And that's got to be the goal all of the time. So in Pizza Express's case, obviously we had loads more than 50. So it was about somebody coming in and maybe taking it from 200 to 400. Mm-hmm. And then the next person at 400 says, okay, you can now leverage it, which obviously has not gone particularly well because you've seen the last six months of the press there, but now you can leverage it and now you can take it for cash. So then it becomes a dividend model much later down the line. But the bit that I'm really interested in, the bit that I love is taking one or two or two or three to sort of 15, 20, 25. Um, and that's the bit I'm good at, and that's the bit that I love. I'm terrible at 25 to 100, and I'm rubbish at 0 to 2, really, yeah. because you give me a blank sheet of paper, I'll just stare at it. <laughs> um, but I'm very good at walking into somewhere and going, oh, this, you could have 50 of these. Yeah. You know, just a tweak here, a tweak there. So it's just about getting that underlying business model right and, and replicating that. And that was the thing that I learned. It sounds so basic, but... You know, I remember having a conversation with um, David about a site that he was looking at in, in Oxford. And I was like, but that's so much money, you know, to buy. The premium was crazy, £300,000 or something. I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it. This was 20 years ago. Um, and I couldn't get my head around it. Why are you paying so much money? And he was, I remember him explaining to me, but Sarah, you know, we are trading at a 22 time P ratio. What does that mean? You know, well, for every pound of earnings that we have, pound of profit that we have, it's worth 22 pounds. So 
we know that when we open a Pizza Express, that site there that we've just paid £300,000 to get into, we'll spend, let's say, 400 grand opening it up. We, on day one, we know we make money on day one. So immediately that site is worth 22 times what it will make in its first year. That far outweighs the 300 grand. And that understanding, when that penny drops, it's like, oh, I get it. Yeah. You know, and it was a really, and then of course, there's all the nuances underneath of how do you actually get the right business model? You know, you've got to do your buying right. You've got to have the right rotors. You know, your staffing has got to be perfect. You've got to have great systems and processes in place that everybody, you know, that uniformity exists if you're, if you're opening a chain. Um, and you've got to make sure that the training is so spot on that people are getting not just great service, but extremely good. You know, per, the food is as good as it in Cheltenham as it is in Brighton, as it is in Glasgow. You know, it's so it, all of the nuances underneath, but that fundamental understanding of the value for creation for shareholders. It's like, oh, I get it. And what about, you know, a, a time like now, you know, economic downturns, crisis? What would you say, you know, restaurant brands have to focus on for that? Well, I think, firstly, I mean, cash is, it's all about conserving cash at the moment. You know, you apply for a loan. If you don't need it, you hold on to it because at some point you are going to need it. Um, So you take what you possibly can. Every single thing that is being thrown at you by the government that is out there, you apply for it. Even if you don't think you're going to need a loan, you take the loan. There is no penalties at all for early repayment. So firstly, you get as much cash together as is humanly possible. You, I think you have to adjust your offer. So we're talking really streamlining menus, bringing it much smaller. So it's much easier to operate, fewer people in the kitchen, fewer people on the floor. This is assuming some form of opening, obviously. Yep. Uh, fewer people, fewer people on the floor, fewer people in the kitchen. I think customers will be very understanding of that and actually will be very grateful to be getting some form of meal at the moment. You know, not now, but when we've opened some something. So it's about making it uh, as simple as possible so that your costs are lower and that you're bringing down your break-even as low as is humanly possible. My fear is that we will be forced to open with such low capacity that we will not be able to open. That's my fear. And actually, for the rest of this year, unless quite genuinely we get the help from the landlords, um, I don't think, I think the majority of our in- industry will not survive it because we, we, we need the capacity in order to be able to pay everything. But without a doubt, we should be safeguarding as much as is humanly possible and bringing our break-even point down to a minimum. You know, we've opened Tonkotsu this last weekend for um, delivery in one of the sites, but we will slowly open some more, as I said earlier. But we're opening with, I mean, it's not even, it's less than a fifth of the menu. You know, it's tiny, but it's everybody's favourites. Yeah. You know, you apply the 20 rule. It's the, it's the stuff everybody wants. We've even put katsu curry back on the menu. You know, those things that are easier to, for us to make, we can do it with fewer staff. They can, they can be safe in the kitchen because um, we've closed down certain pieces of equipment mm-hmm. to you know, so that we don't need it anymore and that we are reducing our break even as much as possible. And then, of course, delivery, you know, delivery 
and takeaway. You know, we were talking earlier before about some of the things that some of the businesses in Brighton are doing um, to keep going. And right now, all of that really works because we've all got the rent breaks. Well, everybody should have the rent breaks. Um, it's what happens as we are forced into paying the rent that is going to become a problem. Um, and we just have to remain agile. So as much cash as possible, simply fly as much as possible possible, so that we can be agile. And then we have to react to whatever those restrictions are to the government. One thing I will say about our industry is that we are extremely creative. Mm. And, um, you know, we will, our industry will find a way. They have to find a way. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The Supersonic Marketing Podcast is also brought to you by Atenzi, the world's leading gamified simulation training provider. Even before the COVID-19 crisis, a LinkedIn study found that more than half of learning and development professionals were looking at remote learning solutions. Given hospitality's new reality, how do you plan to train your staff to accelerate your business out of these tough times? With Atenzi's gamified simulation training, you can accurately recreate the situations and environments that your people will face day in, day out to engage and rapidly develop their abilities. Forget static e-learning, dusty training manuals and passive videos and embrace training's new era with Atenzi. Find more information and get started today at attenzi.com forward slash restaurants. So what about the telly stuff then? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that was not on the cards. I mean, that was really random. I had not expected that at all. And I mean, God, I've loved it. It's been yeah, yeah. an amazing, fun part of my life actually I've really enjoyed it so, so the first thing that I did was yeah a series called The Restaurant I don't know if you ever watched it with Raymond Blanc right so this is how I first knew of you and it's because your name was on an email to me because I'd just started at Yo Sushi oh. and you went to Bristol Cabot Circus right yes well I, I got an email I think I'd just started and I don't think I'd had proper media training at that point or anything like that so anyway Alison my boss went in and was was on the show maybe with you I think so yeah so so that that was that was it that was you know, how you your name I was like you know what's this and you know I think I think they were a wee, wee bit worried you know because you're always nervous as a going to come up well you know and all well, that well funnily enough actually similar story when I when um they first got in touch with me about it so first of all BBC stands for Bombay Bicycle Club in my head. Oh, yeah. So I'd got a message, a post-it note on my desk saying such and such from BBC's called. Um, and I thought, well, they'll call back. You know, it's a, it's internal. They'll call back. So I left it another couple of days. Such and such from BBC's called back again. And I was like, does anybody know what this is about? Who Who is this person? Um, Bombay Bicycle Club, who is it? They were like, no, no, I think it's actually the BBC. And I was like, oh, God, this is going to be some kind of kitchen expose, a nightmare. I've only just taken over the business. You know, this is the last thing I want is this group of TV cameras going through my sites. And, you know, you don't want to be the wrong side of the camera, right? Um, So anyway, they called back again another two or three days later. And I'm kind of half listening because I... 
wasn't I was not expecting the conversation to be the, the conversation it was and then I, hang on so are you what so right okay so what you're actually asking is whether or not I would come in not the sites I would come in for a screen test I was like where, where how have you found me and what they would just want so Raymond had already put forward a couple of people that he'd worked for to be like his sidekicks, mm-hmm. you know, his judges. And they wanted somebody who was independent and they wanted a woman. Right. And I guess at that time, there were, and still, I mean, there are more now, but at that time there were not many women who had either broken out into the business side of the industry or were senior enough. Um, so I thought, well, of course this, I get to go to BBC house in um, White City at the time. Um, so I get to go along there and see the Blue Peter Garden, brilliant, <laughs> take a selfie, you know, whatever, how cool. Uh, so off I went and they had a chat with me and said, you know, would you, is this something you would be interested in doing? And I said, well, it sounds really, yeah, why not? I mean, great. Uh, they said, well, would you now consider going for a screen test in a restaurant? And so we can just see you at work. I was like, Yeah went along did it and then they called me back in again and said well look it's yours if you want to do it it's like what you know I was pregnant and I another child and blah really anyway I'm so glad I did it it was I did three series and Raymond's still a very very close friend so's Lee in fact it was Lee that was just calling you know when the phone rang and Lee, who was the other judge in series one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've kept in touch with him. He's still a really, really good friend. So um, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. That finished and I carried on doing some things um, like I started to do quite a lot of live TV, which I really enjoyed. And actually sort of in terms of personal development, it's one of the best things I've ever done, because I think if you can learn to do live TV, um, you really do have to learn to say, get your point across in a particular time frame in a really easy way that people can understand it. So if you're talking about a particular subject, you've got to know your subject very, very well to be able to distill it down to 75 seconds or something. Uh, And it was a great skill to learn. Hated it at the beginning, was absolutely convinced. If you ever watched any of those videos back, I remember my first live thing that I ever did was on the one show and I swear, if you if you watch that video about you could see my heart. I mean, I was so nervous. I hated it. But then in the end, it becomes part of your comfort zone and you you really enjoy it. And again, I met some amazing people doing that. Learned from one of the best, Eamon Holmes. Had a regular with him every week. Love him. He taught me so much about live television and made me feel so comfortable and relaxed. Really enjoyed it. And then Dragon's Den, funnily enough, um, I'd made the decision that actually a lot of the TV that I was doing was um, the, a lot of the live TV. I'd kind of learned everything that I wanted to learn and I decided that I wasn't going to do any more. And um, I didn't want to have an agent. I didn't want to, you know, it was not something that I was going after, if you know what I mean. I decided that this was not, it was not a path for me. Um, I loved my businesses loved the investments that I'd made and actually I wanted to go much more back to my core values which was 
properly getting my hands dirty in the businesses again. And this was after I'd had kids. And then just completely randomly email appears in my inbox saying, would you consider screen testing for Dragon's Den? And I thought, really? You know, and again, I was like, well, I'm in London on Monday. I'll get to meet Deborah Meaden. Really cool. Yeah, she's very cool. She's great. You know, that's what can I lose? You know, let's get, let's go along. So I went along and they screen tested like 90 women or something. I thought there's not a chance in a million years they'll offer it to me. Um, but I'll go along to the point where I'd hardly even mentioned it to Michael. I didn't really think it was a, it was going to be a thing. It was just, you know, it's just another thing that you do in a day. You know what I mean? yeah, yeah. And then that was on the Monday. And by the Friday, I got a text on the Wednesday to say, you're down to the last three. Whoa. So that's when I went, oh my God. I said, you know that thing I did on Monday? Like, we actually probably should have a conversation about this because I'm down to the last three. Like, what if I actually get it? Is this something I really want to do? This is proper, much more limelight, you know, and I don't have any desire at all to be famous. It's not something that I aspire to. Uh, and in fact, I love still being able to shout at my kids in Sainsbury's and nobody looking at me. You know, still, yeah. I, you know, I, want, I like a normal life. Um, and it's very important to me. I'm very protective of that. And I thought, oh, is this going to be, is this going to change my life for the worse? You know, what, what will life look like? Anyway, on the Friday, they offered it to me and we decided that it was, you know, too much of a fun, interesting, amazing opportunity to turn down. So I, um, yeah, jumped at it. I was like, what a, what a brilliant thing to do. Couldn't believe it. Um, and started filming within a couple of weeks. So it was a, and I'm so grateful, so grateful to have done it. I've made some amazing friends out of it. And of course, Craft Gin Club is one of the investments out of there, which is incredibly successful. Um, and it brought, it brought nothing but good. You know, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It's amazing. Like, I was saying to the wee one uh, just before I was coming on to this, I said, oh, I'm talking to someone because she's obsessed with Dragon's Den and come dine with me at the moment for some reason. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, she, and she was like, oh, you know, can I come and ask her some questions? <laughs> I was like, oh, I yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> <the> next time. <laughs> but no, she was dead. She was like, wow, an actual dragon. But uh, oh, it, must be, it must be cool. I mean, I, no matter, you know, a lot of people are cynical about it and stuff, but it's it's just a really entertaining show. And every single episode, you're you're either really annoyed or gripped by something, you know. Yeah. Um, which and you a- know the the businesses, some of the businesses that come out of it are are really phenomenal. And Dragons Den, if if they are one of those businesses that ends up getting some of the dragons fighting for them you know, they get like 10 minutes of prime time, screen time. Yeah. I mean, the marketing, you can't buy that, yeah. you know, where they are actually just selling their business. Yeah. I mean, you cannot buy that. So in terms of a real, genuine step up for businesses, it is phenomenal. And, you know, I mean, the Craft Gin Club, so I, we both me and Michael sit on the board because a lot of the stuff that they do now is really playing to a lot of Michael's strengths, mm-hmm. a lot of the digital marketing side. And we also have uh, a guy that works with us on a lot of our, 
for investments, he chairs the business. Mm-hmm. You know, so we come as a team, we're very, very actively involved in all of our investments. Um, and we absolutely love it. So really good stuff came out of, of, of that show. You know, the Sublime Science investment, we sold it. Uh, it became quite clear that Mark just needed a break. You know, he needed to get out. The guy who was running it, he'd done it for so long and he was like, I've had enough. Well, between myself and Nick, um, we managed to sell it really successfully at six times what we invested at. Never mind what, you know, he didn't, he, he got all his money, made, he did really well out of it. So that's what I mean is that there are so many great stories to come out of it. It actually does a lot of good to business. Yeah, I, I think it's I'm really pretty, proud to have been I, part of it. I, I think it's that, well, A, that's a badge of honour forever for you, you know, being, being in that finishing school and, and lineup and, and all the rest, which is just incredible. Um, and then just for a lot of the businesses, you know, I think it's almost like you don't want people to be too cynical to strategically go, I'm going on Dragon's Den just for it to be a marketing play. You know, those, those kind of, you know, I, hopefully kind of get weeded out. But as you say, to get prime time, 10 minutes, BBC, still great viewing figures and all the rest of it. And I'd actually argue a lot of the time, you know, just that brand and digital guy in you is screaming a bit because I don't know if a lot of them make enough of it, like live tweeting while they're on or pushing ads while they're on or, you know, that kind of thing. Like I just Well, the really, where I think some of them uh, really can't, you can really miss a trick is, on the day of screening, um, people need to be able to access your product. Yeah. And some of them are just not match fit. They're not ready. And that's a real shame. You know, you've got to do everything you possibly can to ensure that when you are, you know, you know quite far in advance when you're likely to be aired. Mm-hmm. Um to make sure that you're either on the shelves in Sainsbury's or that you can, you know, while somebody's sat on their phone that they can purchase your product because that's when it makes a difference right then and there. People want to be able to transact Definitely. with your product. Otherwise, of course they will forget you six months later when you go, Oh, do you remember me as seen on Dragon's Den? People, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's when you've got to, that's, that's where you can be really, smart and that's the same with the dragons you know and the uh businesses if you can get the deal through quickly uh where the investment takes place then you really benefit from all of the press the marketing and then of course the actual airtime yeah definitely right i'm thinking i need to let you go soon as well man we've been talking for like two hours (laughs) (laughs) actually i'm looking forward to meet you in the pub now of course yeah 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 we'll need need an all-day session Um, the last couple of things that I was going to say, um, just just on the startups, you know, just some advice was, you know, as an investor, and I, I asked Chris this from White Rabbit from the other the other day as well. You know, when you are looking to invest in something, you know, what's the top things really as, as a tick list that you're looking for? So, um, I mean, the first thing is, is there a need or a want? You know, is this something that the cost, customer wants? Um, why is it that y- what you're offering? is better than anything else that's currently out there i think it's very difficult to re-educate a market so i tend to go for things that you know where it's not a complete re-education for the consumer Mm -hmm. um it's much more doing what somebody else is kind of already doing but just doing it a lot better i tend i tend to like 
like those. So what makes what you what you're planning on offering better than anything else that's out there? And then what makes you you actually the right person to do it? Why are why are you the person to back? Because one of the things that I found with really good entrepreneurs is that even if they haven't got the business model right, they'll find the business model within the business model that is right for the consumer. They'll find a way of making it work. Um, And yeah, I think that's that's what I look at to begin with. And then I, because I'm very involved with my um, investments, I have, most of them, I have to, think can I actually go and have a drink with these guys can, mm. you know with these people do do I like them can I am I going to be able to work with them are they open do they have the chip on the shoulder you know insecurities whatever but can can I work with them and that's that's usually that's in, that's an intuition you know you can't you can't rationalize that really yeah yeah yeah, it's the old traffic jam thing, isn't it? You know, could I be stuck in a traffic jam with them? There you go. Yeah, it's <laughs> Sunday dinner, I always think. Can I have so could I have Sunday dinner with them? At least you can get drunk, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not traffic jam. That's even worse. <laughs> getting a long haul flight next to this person. Oh yeah. Um so the last couple of questions then was just a bit of fun. We do this thing called Mark Out of Ten, and it's just some quick fire questions. So yeah. best city to eat in. Oh, that's really tough because different things for different cities. Love Tokyo um, for its excellence, but it is all about a certain type of food. You want excellence and mix. I've got to say London. Uh, Yeah. Favourite place in the world for food is Byron Bay in Australia. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. the restaurants are top quality, but again, it's just that sort of big, healthy, vegan, fresh, lovely type of food. Everything is excellent quality, but cities, I've got to say London. Yeah, oh, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's, it's getting hard to get away from it. It seems to be edge in New York for sure. Yeah. For me, and- I prefer it to New York. I much prefer it to New York because I can walk around London as well. True. Yeah, it's quite vast, isn't it? Yeah. What about um, best restaurant? What's your best restaurant? So my favourite go-to restaurant in London is Limonia in Primrose Hill. Been there for decades. It's a Greek restaurant run by family. Um, Really traditional. Food is always excellent. It's always buzzing. Loads of legacy. But by far the best meal I've ever had in my entire life was Noma in Copenhagen. Oh, yeah. Absolutely blew my mind. I've never experienced anything like it. It was exceptional beyond anything I can describe. What, what was exceptional taste, Luke? Um, it was so different. So I've been very, very lucky, and I've eaten in a lot of top Michelin-starred restaurants. Noma's different, and was di- it was my experience at Noma was very different. It was all very fresh and not heavy. Yeah. Um, so whilst there were something like 26 courses and I use the word course very lightly, um, you would come out and you're not stuffed. It was like Rene Redzepi had gone for a walk through a forest, across a beach, paddled in a sea, through a rock pool, back to his allotment 
along a mountain path and back again. You know, it was it, it was just picking stuff up all the way, bulrushes and um, crayfish, and uh, just beautiful, beautiful fresh food with flavors like I've never experienced. I don't know if you follow him on Instagram. He's mind-blowingly brilliant. Um, yeah, and I was breastfeeding at the time actually when we went, and so I didn't have the wine pairing. Oh. And I just said, oh, no, I'll just have water. And they went, oh, we, we do a juice pairing. Oh. I was like, oh, really? Juice? You know, that's just wasted calories. I don't want to drink juice. And it was said, no, no, this is Noma. And I was like, okay, I'll have the juice pairing. And I tell you, everyone around the table was so envious of my juice pairing. It was so good. Oh. It was like sorrel with, with new pine needles and... Uh, you know, hazelnut bush or something. You know, it's just cr- crazy, crazy flavors. Um, but that's that was what it was. Is I could taste not just the food, but where it came from in every single dish. It was it was exceptional. Yeah, exceptional. Ah, oh, sounds good. What's the deal with Norma now? Is it done? They no, I think they're back. Uh, I don't want to say something that might be wrong, but so he closed down, went and opened, did his pop-up in Mexico. I think he's back and got another site in Copenhagen. Michael's Danish. So we, we go to Copenhagen quite a lot. Yeah. Um, But yes, I, I think he's opened another site, but they're closed at the moment, obviously. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, interesting. And then what about best dish, you know, absolute go-to? Oh God. Yeah. This is like last supper stuff, isn't it? So I, it's very difficult and it entirely depends on my mood. I'm from Stoke and a Staffordshire oat cake with bacon, egg, cheese, black pudding, tomatoes on it is going to be very, very, very hard to beat in any circumstance for me. But I just love food. I mean, really love food. So sometimes I'll sit there and say, I've got to have a tonkotsu ramen. Yeah. Um you know, I'm not a fast foodie person. So, you know, an exceptional pizza, I'll enjoy it, but it's never going to be my go-to. Mm. You know, I'm not, I don't really, I'm not a real pasta person either. But again, you know, you give me a Vongoli and I've done really well, beautiful clams, lovely, you know, white wine, all that gorgeous fresh parsley all over it. And I'll, eat the entire plate and it'll probably I'll probably say that's going to be my last supper you know so I struggle but I think if I probably have to say one thing I've got to go Staffordshire oatcakes and and are they sort of pancakey rather than like Scottish oatcakes they are they look like a cake of crepe but they're not I mean they're made with oats and they're savoury in fact I have just taken delivery this morning of oh, 10 yeah. packs from, oh my favorite place in, in <laughs> stoke i cannot believe they're doing delivery so it's very exciting nice oh that's well, cool never ha- well if you've never had one there's a promise i will make you so when you eat i will bring you a lovely cheesy oat cake i'm in i'm in um so last couple of things then best drink Ooh, um best drink I'm either a perfect margarita, uh-huh. um, gin, a really good gin and tonic, or a proper hardcore 
gin martini. Very good. What 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 would the gins of choice be? Oh, that's that. I honestly do not have a favourite, um, um, and I think that's partly the, because of the craft gin club. I get a different bottle of outstanding craft gin, full bottle every single month, and every time I think I've got a favourite. I end up with another one. I love the Warner Edwards Honeybee Gin. That was really, that's lovely and rich and creamy. Beautiful, beautiful gin. Um, I love Tarquins, also very good gin. But there are honestly, every month I'm like, wow, this is perfect for a martini or this is perfect for a gin tonic or let's make cocktails out of this. It's Yeah, I... There are so many exceptional craft gins out of that out there that I couldn't possibly narrow it down. <laughs> nice. Well, I better let you go. Um, thanks so much for taking the time and, and so much time as well. And I've, I've loved meeting you properly. And um, yeah, we'll we'll definitely catch up on the other side and and get a wee gin or two. That would be lovely. That'd be great. Look, really look forward to it. And thanks so much for chatting. I've really enjoyed it. We need, now need to go and enjoy this lovely sunshine. I'll try my best. Yeah. yeah. A few, a few get out of the studio <laughs> <laughs> all right well, bless you thanks so much for doing it and um yeah I'll, I'll catch up with you soon thanks very much Sarah. Brilliant. take care so there we have it what an amazing guest to have on the podcast really really grateful for sarah giving up her time to talk to us today learn loads i hope you have too lots of great advice and inspiration for you to really go out and grab every opportunity in business a huge thanks to you for listening and also for everyone writing into the show every day and every week. I really, really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and share the podcast with one person so we can really make this grow and grow and grow and get as much great free advice and inspirational stories out to as many people as possible. A massive thanks to our headline sponsors Engage for all of their help. If you need anything digital, social, CRM, apps, anything like that, please get in touch with Alex at Engage and he'll be sure to help you. Thanks also to our premium partner BDO who have been with us since day one. Again, for any financial advice, structuring, mergers and acquisitions, business strategy, anything like that, please get in touch with Peter at bdo.co.uk and he'll sort you out. A massive thanks to Gaz and Gabby as usual for putting the programme together. I know it's a bit fiddly at times, but I really, really appreciate it. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. I really hope that you've enjoyed this episode. It feels like a real special one. And I hope that it's given you enough value that's going to help your brand boom. Boom.